cause of that, but uh, praise, uh, praise the Lord. Well, um, uh, we have the sermon slides up here, Bill? Okay, hang on just a second. Something's going on. Yeah, well, I mean, I, yeah, I, I can do that, but do we have uh, an issue in the booth? Jess, can you maybe go check and see what's going on up there, wherever you are? She's in Children's Church. Okay, there we go. That's not it, but that's fine. There we go. All right. Wonderful. Praise the Lord. Okay. I feel like i got to pray again. Uh, uh, Father, we love you, and again, thank you. Um, wow. Lord, we thank you so much uh, for your presence here with us and what you've already reminded us of in, in, in praise and worship of your goodness and just the intensity of the gospel, uh, the, 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 uh, the radical and extreme nature of, of your love, that, that you come for the worst of us and you come for the worst in us. And that's just incredible. We, Lord, that's worth uh, ruminating on. And, uh, and so we thank you for it. Now, as we turn our attention to your word in the Bible, we pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds to hear you there as well. And we ask you to speak for your servants are listening in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. and amen. Praise the Lord. All right, well, as we continue uh, then uh, uh, our look at the very first followers of Jesus, we want to turn our attention this morning to Acts chapter 5. So if you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and, and jump there. Uh, we've been on a brisk walk through the early, the first part of the book of Acts for a little while now, looking at the very first followers of Jesus to see what we can learn from them and apply in our own lives. So far, we've watched them rely on the Holy Spirit and trust in the Holy Spirit to guide them and direct them and empower them in life. We've watched them build a beautiful community of faith with one another. We've watched them go out into the world and advance the kingdom of God, go out there sharing their God stories and sharing their, their Jesus thoughts and the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit, then coming back together in the church to be refreshed and refueled in order to go back out there and do it again in a life pattern that, for them at least, led to bona fide revival. And I believe it's worth noting as we continue to walk through the book of Acts that the miracles and the manifestations of the Holy Spirit increased as the faithfulness of the followers of Jesus to share Jesus out there continued to increase. So just to get us focused and moving this morning, we're going to look at a lot of Acts chapter 5. Just to get us focused and moving, would you stand with me please as you're able and, uh, and we're going to read, just to get started, Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. I'll read the plain text. If you'll join me in reading the highlighted portions, that we will walk through the passage together. Acts chapter 5, beginning at verse 12, this is what the Bible says. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Praise the Lord, this is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. 
want you to listen again just to verses 13 through 15. We read it right there. I'll read it again. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Anybody in here thinking, sign me up? I mean, if that sounds awesome to you, I got to tell you, that sounds awesome to me. If that sounds like something you want to be a part of, I got to tell you, it's something I desperately want to be a part of too. If it sounds a little bit like paradise restored, a little bit like heaven on earth, I believe it was meant to be exactly that. The kingdom of God breaking into this world, pushing back on the darkness, pushing back on the brokenness. But if you really want to be a part of that, then you really need to understand that this side of the return of Jesus, this side of the fullness of the kingdom of God, this side of of heaven proper, the very best you can hope for is heaven on earth. Heaven light. Heaven-ish. A little bit of a taste of heaven with a whole lot of earth still mixed in. Heaven on earth still has a good deal of earth in it. God wants you out there, just like the very first followers of Jesus, praying and sharing and making a difference, but He wants you doing it like they did, not trying to pursue some romantic, idealized, make-believe way. God wants us to learn from the very first followers of Jesus because I believe he wants to work through you and work through me just like he worked through them. But for some, following Jesus like the first followers of Jesus did means you may need to let go of some unrealistic religious notions or expectations. Make no mistake about it. As awesome as that very first New Testament revival was, It occurred in the midst of the trials and challenges of everyday life. Which means those very first followers of Jesus were sharing the gospel and winning the lost and demonstrating the kingdom of God while also dealing with sick children and aging parents and unappreciative bosses and lower back pain. Even though the Holy Spirit moved mightily, their washing machines still broke down on occasion. And it was much harder to find a good, honest repairman in first century Roman Empire than it is today. The truth is, an honest look at the paradise we just read about, the heaven on earth we just read about, reveals a good deal of trouble in paradise as well. And if you want to live like New Testament Christians, then you can expect New Testament troubles. The normal, everyday troubles of life in a broken, fallen world, as well as the unique sort of troubles that come to the faithful followers of Jesus. And these faithful followers of Jesus in the early part of Acts experienced at least three unique troubles to that early revival that the beginning and the formation and the explosion of the church, and luckily for us, you find all three of them in Acts chapter 5. So the first kind of New New Testament trouble in paradise that you find in Acts chapter 5 is trouble within the church itself. 
specifically trouble with broken, immature, carnal Christians. As we've already seen, those very first followers of Jesus created a beautiful, powerful, amazing, authentic community of faith. They ate together and they prayed together and they generally shared their lives together. The Bible says they devoted themselves to the formation of just that sort of community of faith. They met together all the time. They loved each other and they provided for each other and they really, truly took care of each other, exhibiting incredible generosity along the way. Acts 2 says they shared everything they had. Acts 3 reveals they experienced outstanding miracles. Acts 4 says there were no needy persons among them. And Acts 5 says they were highly regarded by the people. And if that's all you ever read about the early church, you'll definitely think it was a paradigm. And you'll definitely have a wrong impression. Because it is within that idyllic Christian community that you find the first, and in my estimation, the most serious, signs of trouble and paradigm. Because if you recall from two weeks ago when Christian shared with you, Acts chapter 5 opens with the account of a couple within the church, members of the Christian community, members of the family of God, lying to the church leaders, lying to their fellow believers, trying to take credit for giving away all the proceeds of the sale of some land that they sold while secretly keeping some of it for themselves. And you immediately learn that at the very least, some of the people in the church weren't everything they were cracked up to be. In spite of the clear moving of God and the obvious working of the Holy Spirit, in spite of the clear uh, and consistent teaching of the Bible by the apostles of the Lamb, no less. In spite of almost constant worship and prayer and communion. And in spite of an open, honest atmosphere of grace and peace and righteousness and joy, some folk within the church continue to live pretty regularly, just like folk outside the church. In fact, once you finish the book of Acts, you move immediately into a series of New Testament letters in which the leaders of the church are compelled to address all manner of trouble within the Christian community. Churches eaten up with jealousy and quarreling and all kinds of sin. And barely 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus, the Apostle Paul finds himself spending much of his ministry calling out Christians for their sin. you got a guy sleeping with his stepmother, a whole mess of people getting drunk at communion. They're breaking into factions over which preacher they like better. And their church services are such a chaotic mess that they're actually becoming a stumbling block for the lost. It's so bad that barely 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus, Paul finds himself compelled to write to the entire church at Corinth and say, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. Listen, Jesus intentionally set his church in the world, but when the world makes its way into the church, that's another matter entirely. And when the followers of Jesus act like the lost, 
making everything about themselves, fussing and pouting when they don't get their way, then things have been turned on their ear, and you have trouble in paradise. Now, to be clear, I believe the gospel, which means I believe everybody is a mess. I believe everybody is broken and in desperate need of a Savior, including you, including me. I need Jesus. I need Him as much today as I did when I was 18 years old, and I will need Him as much tomorrow as I need Him today. So to be clear, my concern is not when Christians periodically act like they're broken, imperfect people. Rather, my concern is when they do that consistently and excuse or defend those actions as if they're okay. It was big news last week. Maybe you saw it, maybe you didn't. While campaigning in South Carolina, Joe Biden went to attend Mass at a local Catholic church, and the priest refused to serve him communion because of his strong, open support for abortion. I saw the story covered the next day on a morning news program. And one of the hosts of the morning news program was indignant at the priest. His comment was, nobody's perfect, everybody sins, and it is, quote, ludicrous, end quote, for the priest to forbid communion to Joe Biden if he wasn't going to forbid it to everyone. But that guy missed the point entirely. The priest wasn't forbidding communion because of some sin Biden had committed in the past. He was forbidding communion because of a sin he was willfully committing and excusing right that very moment. A sin he was continuing to commit and continuing to defend while standing in the communion line. The Bible's clear. All have sinned. And all will likely do it again. The Apostle James was writing to Christians when he says, we all stumble in many ways. That Christians' sin is a given and that they should confess it and hate it and turn from it and ask God to help them not do it again is also a given. It should never shock you when Christians occasionally do bad things. Now let me say, that includes you. It shouldn't shock you when you occasionally behave like you're imperfect. But it should always shock you. And it should always disturb you if Christians excuse or defend those bad things and then choose to hang on to them. Christ died to pay for and to rid us of such things. He did not die to pay for them so we could then hang on to them and walk in them with ongoing impunity. When a Christian in the church at Corinth became caught up in sexual sin, the Apostle Paul addressed it and eventually put him out of the church until he confessed and repented, at which time he was forgiven and restored to the fellowship. Carnal, petty, sinful behavior that's consistent and excused or defended by Christians is a serious sign of trouble in paradise. And when Paul rebukes Christians by calling them mere infants in Christ, he is clearly saying we are expected to grow up 
Far too many Christians today have ungodly lifestyle habits they tolerate and excuse and sometimes, honestly, even brag about. So when Christians think and act and talk like everybody else in the world, you've got trouble in paradise. And if we're going to be the people God's called us to be, if we're going to do the stuff God has called us to do, then we're going to have to develop an authentic Christian, an authentic kingdom community, an authentic kingdom culture, which means we're going to have to address these sorts of issues when they occur in the church. Kingdom culture is discipleship culture. And as disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, we must be committed to learn and grow and change, to learn and grow and get better. And as disciples who make disciples, we must be committed to help others do the same thing, which means lovingly, graciously, and redemptively calling folks out when they begin to develop sinful life patterns and excuse them. Now, let's be clear. You don't need to call out everything because all you'll do is call stuff out. We all stumble in many ways. That's a given. That Christian sin is a given. But when it starts to become a lifestyle pattern and you start to defend it or excuse it, we must be committed as the people of God to deal with that sort of trouble in paradise. The second form of trouble in paradise you find in Acts chapter 5 is the trouble that always comes with ministry and working with broken, hurting, messed up people. I didn't talk with the worship team before this week, but I'm so delighted they picked that second song that we talked for the broken, for the hurting, for the, for the outcast, for the weary, for the wounded. Such a perfect song for what I want to share. Listen again to Acts chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. And as you listen to that and as you read that, I want, you to, make, I want to make sure you do that with a firm grip on reality. This is the written word of God. That means all of it is true. All this stuff really happened. It isn't some sort of storybook fantasy. This stuff really happened. So please don't read it with rose-colored or religious glasses. Too many Christians seem to view the Christian life as some sort of a, a Hallmark movie. Praise the Lord. Lost people were being saved. Sick people were being healed. Desperate people, broken people, seriously messed up people were finding real help and real hope and real change in Jesus which only served to draw in more sick and broken and messed up people. And if that sounds glorious to you, you are absolutely right. And if that sounds chaotic and messy and disruptive and inconvenient and uncomfortable and exhausting, you are also right. Because let me assure you, what you find here in these passages is not some clean calm, sedate, upper-middle-class suburban experience. I promise you it was not always pleasant, and it wasn't even always suitable for young children. Listen, when you begin to reach out to broken, hurting, messed-up people, it does not take long to recognize they're broken, hurting, 
and messed up. And you need to understand sick people act like sick people. Whether they're physically sick, emotionally sick, spiritually sick, they have a tendency to cough on you and occasionally to throw up on your carpet. God has called us to serve and bless and help and reach broken, wounded, damaged people. But until you've really tried to do that, you have no idea how hard it is. And let me just say, if you don't right now have somebody regularly breaking your heart over the terrible lifestyle decisions they keep making over and over again, if you don't have someone regularly invading your space or frequently asking for more of your time than you can possibly imagine being able to give them, you might not be ministering enough. The Bible says crowds, great masses of people from all over Jerusalem and from all the towns around Jerusalem were bringing their sick and those tormented by unclean spirits. They were packing the streets and laying folks down on the streets, bringing them to the church gatherings, bringing them to the Christian homes, moaning, wailing, hurting people, some of them with oozing, smelly sores, demoniacs, acting like demoniacs. And they just kept coming. They came at dinner time. And they came at night, and they came first thing in the morning. And if you think it was always easy, then you're probably not doing it. Sick people tend to act like sick people. Broken people tend to break things. And hurting people tend to hurt people. Sin and the devil do a terrible, horrible number on people. For some of you guys, backsliding means you say a dirty word if you hit your thumb or with a hammer. For many people, backsliding means they toot a line of cocaine or they drink till they pass out because there's a whole lot of brokenness in the world. And if you're going to help broken people, you're going to have to come in contact with their brokenness. Reaching out to the lost and the hurting will occasionally mean having to get out of bed and put your clothes back on in order to go over to sit with someone whose spouse just left them to get out of bed and put your clothes back on, to take a friend to the hospital because her boyfriend just beat her up. You may have to step out of your kid's ball game in order to field a phone call from someone who's contemplating suicide. You may have to send your kids to the back of the house because somebody you've been reaching out to just showed up at night at your front door drunk out of his mind. By the way, all those are real-life experiences I've personally walked through. And if you're thinking, yeah, but that's your job as the pastor, listen very carefully. That is not my job as the pastor. That is our job as the people of God. My job as the pastor is to train you to do that. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's my job as pastor. It's all of our job as followers of Jesus to rearrange our lives for broken, messed up, hurting people. I believe one reason we're not seeing revival today is because not enough Christians are following the Holy Spirit out there into the brokenness of the world. One reason we're not seeing revival today is because too few Christians are addressing their own carnality and immaturity and childishness. 
And one reason we're not seeing revival today is because a whole bunch of church people simply don't want the inconvenience. Because helping sick and broken people is almost never easy or convenient. Finally, the third kind of trouble in paradise you find in Acts chapter 5 is trouble from opposition. Because as I mentioned last week, when you go out there and start sharing your God stories, when you go out there and start sharing your your Jesus thoughts, some people will not like it. Acts 5.16 says, Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and their tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Without a doubt, Acts 5.16 says incredible things were happening. Incredible things were happening. And the very next verse, Acts 5.17 says, Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. Now, to be honest, if I was Peter or John at that time, I'm not sure that's the response I would have anticipated. I mean, you think about it, we're out there, you know, we're making a difference in the world, we're sharing the love and the, and the goodness of God, we're sharing the, the, the power and the presence of God, lots of really needy people are being helped and saved and healed and set free, and I don't know, if it were me, I might have expected something more like enthusiasm or gratitude. But I share this with you this morning so you won't be surprised when you go out there to take Jesus into the world, to share your God stories and to share your Jesus thoughts, to make a difference for the kingdom of God, and sometimes people get mad about it. In the original Greek, verse 17 says the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders were filled with zealots. We get the English word zeal from it. The New International Version translates it here as jealousy. It says they were filled with jealousy. But I've got to be honest with you. I don't believe that's the best translation. The King James Version translates it as filled with indignation. And personally, I think that's a little bit closer to the mark. Zelos literally means zeal. It's a hot, boiling ardor and emotion. It comes from a verb that literally means to be hot or to boil. It is passionate intensity about something. Jealousy suggests the emphasis is on their pettiness. I think the Bible's emphasis was on the white hotness of their response. These guys weren't just a little bit mad. They were zealously upset, aggressively upset that these folks kept talking about Jesus. I don't know if you've ever encountered someone who was zealously upset, filled with zealots, when you tried to share something about Jesus with them. I have. If you ever have, you recognize it when it happens. It's aggressive, it's threatening, it's pregnant with emotion. And if you're going to represent Jesus in the world, you're going to occasionally encounter that sort of zealos. Make no mistake mistake about it, these guys in Acts 5 were white hot. They were driven to get the disciples to stop, which is always the goal of this sort of zealos. Art Katz tells a story about a time he was on an airplane, and uh, he kind of jiggled the door with this young lady sitting beside him. She opened the door just a little bit. He started talking to her about Jesus, when suddenly the woman beside her, who did not know Art Katz and did not know this woman, either one, loudly and aggressively shouted in the tight confines of the airplane, why don't you just leave her alone? Can you imagine how embarrassing that would have been for an older man talking to a young lady in in a tight plane full of strangers, but that is always the goal. 
of this sort of zealous. It is to get you to stop. To get you to leave the world alone. So they can quietly and happily go to hell. They want you to stop talking about Jesus. They want you to stop laying hands on people. They want you to stop sharing your testimony and your God stories and your, and your Jesus thoughts, those little nuggets Jesus gives you when you read your Bible or when you come to church or when you go to small group. Don't let those things die with you. Give them to somebody else. But, but this kind of zealous wants to stop you. Listen, this kind of zealous does not care if you come here and praise the Lord and talk about Jesus and get encouraged and built up. They just want you to stop doing it there. So in verse 17, they take these followers of Jesus and they throw them in jail again. But then look what happens next this time. The Bible says, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. Praise the Lord. That's, that's pretty cool. I do want to make sure you recognize two things here. First is this. This doesn't happen every time. Now, to be fair, there are multiple occasions in the Bible where the Bible says God sent someone and broke people out of jail. But there are more examples in the Bible where God left them in the slammer. So I want to make sure you understand, God can break you out of jail, but he doesn't promise he always will. And the second thing I want to make sure you understand is that even being set free, please notice they were not set free for their own comfort. They weren't set free because the jail was unpleasant. They were set free to go back out there and continue to do the work of the kingdom. And so if I may, for just a moment, offer a brief aside to our retirees. Because the truth is, while your retirement freed you from any obligation whatsoever to go to the bank or, or go to Duke Energy or, or go to the office at 8 o'clock every morning or, or to be on, be on the construction site at 6 o'clock in the morning, your retirement freed you from any such obligation. It did not free you from the obligation to minister. God did not let these guys out of jail so they could go play another round of golf. God freed them from jail so they could continue to do the work of the kingdom out there in the world. By all means, don't hear me say something I'm not saying, by all means, enjoy your retirement. Play golf. You know, visit the grandkids. Visit the Grand Canyon. Have a big time. But when you're not traveling, you really need to be in somebody's home or have somebody in your home so you can help lead them toward Jesus. Help talk them down off the ledge, doing the work of the kingdom of God. And so the Bible says, at daybreak they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. Sometime later that day, they were arrested again and hauled before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. And there the Jewish council accused them of having filled Jerusalem with their teaching about Jesus and the new life in Jesus. And I think, there's a goal. What a great goal. Do you think, can we fill Charlotte with the good news of Jesus? They said, you have filled Jerusalem with this teaching. May we 
fill Charlotte with the good news of the kingdom. From there, the disciples went on to proclaim Jesus to the Sanhedrin, which you can imagine they did not appreciate. In fact, the Bible says when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. Thankfully, a guy named Gamaliel intervened, talked them out of it. And so a little later, the Bible says, they called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And so I remind you what I shared with you last week. The only thing you have to do to stop a move of God, the only thing you have to do to stop a revival is stop using the name of Jesus. Stop talking about Jesus. Stop speaking in the name of Jesus. And for what it's worth, you should also know these very first followers of Jesus steadfastly refused to do that. In spite of all the trouble they encountered, troubles from the everyday life, troubles from carnal, immature Christians, troubles from broken, messed up people, trouble from angry, aggressive opposition, the Bible says the apostles left the Sanhedrin, rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And... Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped. Say they never stopped. They never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. We're studying Christ's first followers so we can follow Christ just like they did. With powerful results out there in the world and with powerful community here in the church. But living like a New Testament life will likely mean encountering New Testament troubles. And the question is, are we willing to do that? You might be sitting there thinking, Pastor Billy, you just made New Testament living sound awful. To which I would suggest I made it sound real. And I made it sound costly. Both of which it is. It is a real possibility, a real option, and a real call of God for each of us. And it is really, truly expensive. Make no mistake, it's absolutely worth it. But I am convinced we will never have New Testament results if we will not endure and overcome New Testament troubles. May we take up the challenge, may we take up the charge, may we be filled with the Spirit of God and follow Him out there to make a difference in the world for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as always, we thank you for the power and the clarity of the Word of God. Lord, you, you, you show us such incredible things. The, 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 you tell us in your Word, and then you show us through real-life experience that you will put your Spirit inside of us. You'll change us and make us born again. You'll fill us and empower us and lead us by your Spirit. You'll, you'll offer gifts and manifestations of your Spirit so we can represent you in the world. So we can be your witnesses in the world. And you show us what it looks like when, when, when people surrender. But you also don't sugarcoat it. You show us what it looks like when people surrender. Lord, may we be willing to follow you, to listen to your spirit, and to go where you send us. To go out there and advance the kingdom and come back here and be encouraged and re refueled. And to go back out there and do it again and come back here and do it again. Make us a people. Make us the people. You've called us and created us, created us to be. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.